The Suez Canal is a vast waterway that connects the Mediterranean to the Red Sea through the Isthmus of Suez. It stretches from Port Said in the north to the city of Suez in the south, and it offers ships an easier way to get from the North Atlantic to the Indian Ocean without having to pass all the way around the southern tip of Africa, the Cape of Good Hope. It shortened the shipping time from India to London by over 5,000 miles, and in 2022, over 20,000 vessels passed through the canal. That's about 55 a day. I'm Susie Ferguson, and you're listening to the Ottoman History Podcast. There's a story about Suez that we think we know, how French diplomat Ferdinand de Lesseps created one of the great infrastructure projects of the late 19th century world and changed the pathways of global commerce and global capital. But today, we'll hear a different kind of story about the men and women who moved or were forced to move to the canal zone starting in the 1860s. Their labor, their ties to each other and their homelands, and the way they spent their time made the canal zone just as much as, or even more than, the grand dreams of men like Ferdinand de Lesseps. Our guest today is Dr. Lucia Carminati, Associate Professor of History at the University of Oslo and the author of a new book just out from University of California Press called Seeking Bread and Fortune in Port Said, Labor Migration and the Making of the Suez Canal, 1859-1906. to Lucia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Susie. It's, uh, it's wonderful to be here with you and everyone. So I thought we could start our discussion by asking you to, to introduce the workers whose life and work on the canal zone is really at the heart of the book. So you write at one point that it was said that at any given time, up to 20,000 workers were on their way to the canal zone, 20,000 were working there, and 20,000 were on their way home. I think this really gives us a sense of the kind of scale of human infrastructure that was required to build the canal. So who were these workers and where were they coming from? Yeah, and to add to those numbers you've mentioned, I want to remind an observation that uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser himself uh, uttered in July 26 of 1956 when he argued that up to 120,000 workers uh, had died in the undertaking of the, of the Suez Canal. But the reason why I'm mentioning this number is not because we need to take these figures uh, for granted. It's just an indication of the sheer volume, but also it's an indication of how politicized numbers would become, especially later in the 20th century. So my book does not really make an effort to pin down exact numbers, but it does try to, um, to sort of create a picture of how many uh, and from how multiple, how many different places uh, these workers came. Uh, not only from the rest of Egypt, uh, that's where at first mostly Egyptian forced workers were uh, recruited, uh, both southern provinces and the Delta provinces. Uh, but also we see how uh, the Suez Canal Company actually reached to other parts of the Ottoman Empire trying to recruit, for example, Syrian workers, especially Christian Syrian workers who could easily replace Muslims during the Ramadan fasting period. But the recruiting efforts went even beyond the southern uh, Mediterranean coast and attracted people from uh, all over uh, Europe, uh, not just southern Europe, but we see, I found uh, in the archives, traces of Austrian-Hungarian immigrants, for example, to Egypt, 
as well as other locations further up in the in the heart of of the European sort of geographic entity. So I'm trying to sort of uh, tackle this um, this narrative that we can mostly find in in the available histories of, of the Suez Canal, according to which it's the Suez Canal that made this region, that created these cities, uh, without really mentioning the the flesh and blood people who inhabited these places and actually excavated the ground that made the canal possible. So it's notoriously difficult to track down the kind of nitty-gritty details of the lives and experiences of working people. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the kinds of sources that you used to do this work, and if there are ones that particularly stick out to you as sort of critical to the kinds of arguments you were able to make in the book. Well, out of the um, many different kinds of sources that I tried to piece together to sort of create this choral uh, picture of life on the Suez Canal worksites, uh, taken from several different countries and several different archives, and even different kinds of different types of archives. Uh, I think that the letters that migrants themselves wrote were the sources that mostly uh, struck me in a way because of how of how emotional often they're, they're, the contents of these sources could be. Migrants were describing the suffering. They were describing the how their plans went uh, all right when they found themselves staying in the isthmus much longer than planned. When they expressed, for example, their uh, longing for their for their home, for their family, how they felt abandoned by their families, even. So these, of course, are letters that uh, that got stuck in the archives that were never actually sent, that were never actually they were never actually reaching their destinations. So in a way, it's a paradoxical kind of source that uh, remained silent in history, but it's so evocative for the historian today. I still sort of value them as uh, as very evocative and um, uh, sort of as, as something that really uh, gives a picture of how life could be on the work sites, notwithstanding the narratives of technological triumph or uh, diplomatic victory that have prevailed uh, later on in, in especially 20th century historiography. What do we learn from the letters and the other kinds of sources that you work with about what it was like to work on the canal? I mean, what was the work like? What were the conditions of work? Um, what did people find, you know, most onerous? Um, how did people engage the work that they were doing? The book includes a lot of everyday stuff, details about uh, how people were, and initially especially, uh, how workers were struggling to find drinking water, uh, how they were trying to protect themselves from the heat, or how they were trying to sleep at night. The very first years of the Suez Canal excavation, uh, of course, saw uh, some kind of logistical effort on the, on the part of the Suez Canal company that had to house and protect these workers, but was often also failing to do so. So there were not shelters, there were not enough shelters for everyone. When a cholera outbreak happened in 1865, there were no sufficient measures in place. So we see how workers were still attracted to the Suez Canal work sites because of perspectives of, of gain, either um, real or, or, uh, or, or imagined. But at first, life was really, was really, really hard. And um, it was not just a male struggle. We see how women were present on the Suez Canal work sites uh, since the very early beginning of the of the enterprise of the undertaking, 
And uh, what the, the book also tries to show is that there was excavation work proper. Uh, so different kinds of workers were taking care of different tasks, mainly related to earth removal uh, away from the planned trajectory of the canal. But then the presence of so many people also engendered different kinds of works and different sort of required different services to be in place. And so we see how uh, hotels and taverns uh, were in place and often managed by women, for example, uh, who were also taking care of laundry work or domestic service. So other kinds of professions were also present on the Suez Canal work sites, going beyond uh, the, the sheer task of removing dirt from the ground. So I'm curious, you have a situation with a very heterogeneous workforce coming to sort of take up root in the Suez Canal Zone. We've got folks from Italy, from Austria, from Syria, and of course from Egypt itself. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how the Suez Canal Company and the people who were in charge tried to manage labor on the Canal Zone, um, and particularly how Egyptians fit in in comparison to other groups. Yeah, there's a story that I'm particularly uh, fond of, which is the story of uh, an Egyptian doctor uh, in the hire of the Suez Canal Company, and his presence uh, is visible in the archives. Uh, as many details as I uh, decided to include, it unfortunately, it doesn't really give us a full picture of, of this man's life. But I think it's important to, to sort of point out how, on the one hand, the company claimed that each uh, race, each nationality was particularly apt at carrying out a certain task. And of course, there was a, a racially informed and a, and a sort of a value-laden hierarchy of people on the Swiss color worksites, as I, as I try to show. But then at the same time, I think it's also worth highlighting how the task of earth removal, for example, included many different individuals who had different nationalities. And then at the same time, as I, as I mentioned, uh, doctors could be French, but there could be Egyptian doctors as well. So one thing is the narrative of uh, national and racial homogeneity that we find in the sources. But then uh, on, the, on the other hand, there was a, a reality of, of mixing uh, that was sort of also very much uh, interesting and worth highlighting. And in this regard, I would love to mention the fact that there are traces of um, a pidgin, of a specific language that was spoken on the Swiss Canal worksites. There was a mix of Arabic, of Italian, uh, of other sort of technical terms that were uh, being used by Mediterranean sailors at the time. But this uh, unique language was, was associated to, to the Suez Canal worksites. And what I try to, to hypothesize is that even if it's hard to, to see instances of actual cooperation and solidarity among workers of different uh, nationalities or of different um, sort of racial belongings, I think that the existence of a, of a mixed language actually shows how workers were interacting on the Swiss Canal work sites, where work were rubbing shoulders every day and sort of looking at one another or at the very least trying to find ways to communicate with one another. So this is a work site where at once we have um, elites, company officials, you know, Ottoman and Egyptian statesmen of various kinds making arguments about racial hierarchies of labor, right? That this kind of person 
is suited to do this kind of work. But then when you actually dig down into the kind of heterogeneous historical record of this experience, what you find is something much less ordered, much more marked by kind of mixing and sort of surprising um, cross-pollinations, it sounds like. Yeah, correct. That's exactly what I found um, to be the most exciting sort of discovery when doing this work. So another thing that the book really asks us to do is to rethink some of the sort of central categories that we use when we're thinking about something like labor, right? And this is the difference between sort of free labor and coerced labor. And one of the things that I think the story of the canal can really help us to see is how these two categories might not actually be as um, binary or as opposed as we might initially believe. Um, Could you talk a little bit more about how you see those categories of free labor and coerced labor in the canal zone? This was also uh, something challenging when writing the book, because on the one hand, the least thing I wanted was to deny the actual circumstances, the actual challenges of forced laborers and what it meant for uh, Egyptian workers to be drafted uh, against their uh, volition and how, how hard it was for them to be on the work sites. At the same time, I think it's worth well, what the Suez Canal work sites showed is that there was definitely uh, an overlap of different labor regimes. Uh, at the very same time, there were uh, different labor arrangements that coexisted on the work sites. So especially between 1861 and 1864, there were Egyptian forced laborers on the work sites. We also see so-called free and so-called Arab workers. Uh, and the reason why I'm using sort of these la- these bracketed labels is that it's really hard at this time to actually pin down what Arab actually meant. But the sources mention uh, free Arab workers uh, as well as free European immigrant workers. So at the very same time, we see different categories of workers, again, working um, side by side, often employed in the very same uh, tasks. But what is also interesting to point out is that um, the Swiss Canal work sites are helpful to understand how transitions from one labor regime to another, for example, in and out of forced uh, labor, is also really hard to to track down. So the official dates for uh, the Courve, the the forced labor system on the Swiss Canal work sites, are 1861 as the beginning of this system, and 1864 as the end of this forced labor system. But what sources reveal is that even before 1861, there were instances of forced labor, and how even after 1864, sort of the transition was a little bit more muddled and uh, and gradual. So the book does describe how life circumstances and work circumstances for forced laborers were particularly dire. And also the book connects the end of forced labor with heightened or stronger uh, recruiting efforts abroad internationally to attract the labor force that the canal still needed. But at the same time, it tries not to set up um, sort of two strong benchmarks uh, when talking about different labor regimes. And by putting these labor regimes together in the space of the canal zone, right, and in the the actual sort of experiences of workers in the canal zone, um, you also pose the question of sort of like, what did it mean to come so-called freely to work in the canal zone from a place like Algeria or Syria or southern Italy in the 1860s, right? And helps us to sort of think about the different layers of kinds of coercion um, that are at stake 
in the production of, you know, a major infrastructural development like this one. Thank you very much, Susie, for this question. Uh, and that's absolutely also one of the of the goals uh, of of the book, problematizing a little bit what we think of in terms of free migration. What does it actually mean uh, in the end of the day to migrate freely if you're sort of pushed out uh, because of poverty or because of environmental reasons? Or there's a vast array of reasons uh, for migrating that I also try to embrace in the book to show how there could be gradients and nuances in, in pushing people to decide to migrate or to adopt this life choice. So in terms of migration history, what the book also tries to, uh, to contribute to is by combining different scales of analysis and embracing both the individual life choices and how complicated they could be, with uh, the scale of broader uh, changes or more sort of encompassing changes on the national and the transnational level and how basically how we cannot really keep these two separate at all. Uh, this was one of the goals as well as one of the challenges of, of in writing this book, how to make sense of a myriad of different life choices with um, changes happening at the national or imperial level. I also just think, you know, it's, it's really interesting uh, in the sort of realm of migration history to think about a book that puts migration to Egypt rather than mi migration from Egypt or the rest of uh, the region to, say, Europe or the United States at the center and to kind of recast a place like Port Said as a place forged by in-migration as well as at different points in its history, you know, as a place where people left from. And to reimagine a place like Egypt in the 1860s, and particularly Port Said, as a, as a place where people were coming to, as you say in your title, to seek bread and fortune. And I think this is a really nice companion to books that really focus on sort of the out-migration of folks from the Arab world to other places, um, you know, seeking economic opportunity. So it reminds us that Historically, this process has not been unidirectional from the Middle East to Europe or the United States, um, and that it, it's been shaped in many ways by, by infrastructure, by capital, um, and also by states. And in this case, we have state and non-state actors, including the Egyptian state, obviously the Ottoman imperial framework, and then also uh, the Suez Canal Company itself shaping how labor is moving to this region. Yeah, you've highlighted both the regional uh, focus of the book and the transnational focus of the book. And I think that the coexistence of these two can help us rethink the national in a way. Because by focusing on the Suez Canal region, I can show how this became a, a sort of a relatively independent circuit for, of mobility for people who would uh, leave Port Said and uh, go to Ismailia and then leave Ismailia and go to Suez to maybe seek out uh, different job opportunities or, or for many different reasons. At the same time, this new circuit of mobility centered on the Suez Canal uh, became connected to Cairo and Alexandria and sort of uh, refashioned internal connections to Egypt in a different way. But then at the same time, uh, by looking at, for example, the Syrian Ottoman province from the Suez Canal region, I can show how these different areas within the Ottoman Empire were actually connected by human mobility in different directions. And so I think that by incorporating this regional focus as well as this transnational uh, focus, we can actually rethink what Egyptian boundaries uh, meant, how they came to be. And uh, by, rethinking, uh, by rethinking these connections, we can also maybe 
decenter <laughs> Egyptian uh, historiography and decenter what uh, the national histories of Egypt should look like. So we've talked a little bit about how the migration to the Suez region shaped these transnational flows and Mediterranean circuits. And I'm curious if we could dig a bit more into this category or idea of migrants as a group or even labor migration as a coherent category. Because one of the things I think a fine-grained social history like this book shows us is that it's, it becomes difficult to see migrants as some kind of homogenous group that we can talk about in the abstract. So I wonder if you could speak a bit about how the book sort of helps us to think against this sort of category, homogenous category of migrants, and asks us to attend to relations of power within that group as well. Another contribution to migration history that the book tries to, to, to bring to, to discussion is the idea that, um, yes, this was a time of heightened mobility, of uh, migration, uh, migratory choices and opportunities, but at the same time, what Port Said and the Suez Canal project witness is the mobility of many different kinds of people who had unequal kinds of access to this mobility. So, as I've mentioned, there were forced workers who may have, or who did move against their will. Uh, there were people who were perhaps actively choosing to leave home, and yet others who were pushed out for, for a number of reasons. What uh, the, the Suez Canal society became was really the embodiment of, of this inequality uh, that was first and foremost expressed in these different kinds of, of, of movement, different kinds of access to mobility, that later also translated into the urban space itself. So uh, different uh, immigrant groups came to inhabit different parts of the city, and to give a, a more concrete example, these different parts of the city had uh, drastically uneven kinds of infrastructure, for example, um, something that my uh, next research will delve more into. So, for example, things may have looked really different for uh, different uh, workers who were toiling together at the same uh, work site. For example, in 1861, at a work site called Alfirdan, the sources reveal how a few workers uh, who were presumably Egyptian or Arab workers, uh, they resented the ill treatment that they had received from, uh, from a French foreman and they uh, deserted the work, the work sites, which is a wonderful example of one of the many different strategies that workers could implement to protest work conditions. And in particular, we know that this group of workers had been instigated by two brothers who were particularly influential with them. The problem, though, is that the fugitives, who, again, because it was 1861 and because they were uh, Egyptian, were uh, forced workers, they were apprehended and brought back to the work sites, presumably against their, uh, their will, but to add insult to injury, what happened is that the Italian, Spanish and Arab workers toiling on the same site. So, again, we see them working together. These other workers declared that these indigenous fellah workers, so uh, forced, forced laborers, forced Egyptian laborers, had never lacked anything and had only received good treatment. So, so in the end of the day, they were they tried to escape. They were brought back. They had to endure the insult of of being um, of working next to these to these other workers who had not shown solidarity, 
And the French foreman was eventually exonerated from any accusations of any wrongdoing. Yeah, I think that example really sums up what you're talking about um, in terms of not only the unequal access to migration, but also the unequal sort of uh, the effects of that um, once they reach the work site. So even as they entered this heterogeneous and sort of full of potential in some ways world of Port Said, people really um, struggled to stay in touch with the people that they had left behind, right? So they did not come to this place uh, reborn. They came with all of the ties and all of the responsibilities that they had had um, at home or in their previous place of life and work. So could you talk a little bit about how people in the canal zone and in Port Said struggled to maintain those ties, right? How they, how they sort of related to the people that they had left behind, people in places that they had left behind. Through some of the sources that got stuck in the, in the consular mesh, in the consular archives, and that never really reached their intended recipients, we see uh, glimpses of what both migrant life looked like, but also what life looked like uh, on the shores uh, from which these migrants had departed. And often it's uh, women, it's wives who had been left behind, who write to their um, uh, mobile uh, spouses asking for money, for example, or expressing, venting their frustration and not making their, their ends meet. And when these women are uh, not writing to their husbands, they are, there are traces of women uh, protesting with authorities so that authorities can actually help them ferret out their husbands and forcing them to actually send money home. It's also, there's also family members. Uh, so it's not just uh, women or uh, sort of abandoned women who, who write. It's also family members who try to discover the whereabouts of, uh, of the migrants who, who had left. Often we do not find the answers to these quests, uh, but it's a, it's, a, it's a very important historical fact. What's very meaningful is to see how people, bo both back home and in their new homes, were actually trying to actively maintain those links by either writing, uh, keeping in touch, or sending money, or failing to do so, for example. And there's evidence of uh, migrant networks and how they operated to actually, for example, make sure that these letters uh, reached their destinations. So we've talked a little bit about how people work to maintain or to negotiate ties with the places that they came from. And I'm hoping to learn a little bit more about what their lives were like on the canal zone itself. So beyond the domains of labor and work that we've already talked a lot about. How did people's identities and communities shift or take new shape in the canal zone? These uh, questions about uh, sort of identity and, uh, and, and change in a migrant's life have, have always informed my research. And unfortunately, I don't think I've come up with good answers. But what I've tried to do was to uh, look at how people uh, not only worked, but also spent their free time. And I think that by uh, studying the ways in which people had fun and mingled with one another, maybe we can get at uh, some of these answers. A few pastimes in the Suez Canal region, and in Port Said in particular, had to do with the specific isthmus environment. And so I can mention hunting and uh, fishing and uh, beach going, for example. Other pastimes instead 
we're very much catering to the national identity of, of migrants or which often was also sort of romanticized and created and recreated on the spot through, for example, uh, newspapers that uh, carefully um, targeted certain communities, uh, through national or religious uh, celebrations and days of festivities. So these were pastimes that attracted people along national lines. But what I also tried to talk about is entertainment venues, of which there were there was a, a, a an array of of different kinds, and I could mention uh, gambling houses, for example, or brothels, or uh, small uh, diving bars, or larger larger venues where reading or gambling uh, took place. And what I tried to 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 show is that these entertainment venues, where alcohol was consumed in large quantities often catered to uh, to many different kinds of people, notwithstanding their national uh, belonging or, or religious belonging. So these were uh, really more open venues for people to mix uh, to mix and mingle together. However, these the very same consumption of alcohol often ended up fueling tensions and clashes could erupt uh, where national identities, would be claimed or reclaimed in antagonistic fashion. But I think that the value in showing that there were different entertainment options for workers opens up to these, the multiplicity of the ways in which they felt or, or the, the loyalties that they cultivated. I just, for our listeners' benefit, I want to mention a detail that really stuck out to me from the book, whereas uh, you note that in 1867 in Port Said, with a population of around 8,000 people, consumed 100 hectoliters of wine every day, not including fine wines and liquors. So we're talking about a place where, while it is a space of hard work, much of it coerced in one way or another, it is also a space where people are doing all of the other things that make up a human life. Labor was was only one part, albeit a large part, um, of a very a very full uh, human life in the in the canal zone. Do we know anything about what kind of time workers had for these pastimes? There are some indications on um, the the number of hours in which different kinds of workers had to toil. But you have to consider that alongside the the rightfully employed individuals, there was also a population of others who were maybe intermittently employed or unemployed altogether or just playing around and uh, searching for other opportunities in the in the urban space. So labor is really one part of the story here. It's it's a foundational one. It's work opportunities that mostly drove people to these places. But then there was much else uh, going on. And that's what the title actually tries to capture. So people were seeking bread. Uh, they were seeking, uh, but they were also seeking uh, fortune in, in many different other ways. So it was because of uh, a sort of, a, of, a, of economic opportunity. But economic opportunity doesn't really tell the full story of this chapter of Egyptian as well as Mediterranean and migration history. So work on the canal zone, or at least on the canal project itself, concludes in 1869. The canal is dug. The great shortcut has been created. What happens next? What happens to all of the workers who had come to work in places like Port Said? And how did migrants adjust? 1869 remains um, a meaningful benchmark in my work, even if I 
try to overcome these and other temporal benchmarks in many different ways and try to show how continuities and ruptures may have been different from, from the ones we usually think of. But AD 69 remains meaningful, even if, I think, a different history of 1869 can be written. A history that is much less uh, festive and much less triumphant. So 1869 in this book is not the moment in which the uh, the majestic canal, Ferdinand de Lesseps' uh, brainchild, is finally inaugurated. But 1869 is a time is a sad is a sad moment when uh, thousands lose their jobs and uh, are left stranded, basically not knowing what to do with themselves. Uh, some of them will uh, will leave again. Uh, some of those who leave will actually go to other places, to other destinations, which to me is interesting in plugging Egypt into uh, more global uh, migratory routes. And But some of these uh, former uh, workers, former canal company workers, they actually stay in Port Said, which again is, uh, is an interesting um Gives, an, uh, gives us an interesting idea of uh, what later Egyptian society uh, would look like. It's an important facet in, in, in the modern history of, of Egypt to show how many of these newcomers or foreigners, however we want to call them, immigrants, actually decided to stay on. So what were, what were the industries or the things that kept people going in, the, in Port Said after the, the completion of the canal? What kinds of work did people, were you people able to find in the years after 1869? Some maintenance over the canal would still employ uh, workers. So the Suez Canal Company did not altogether cease to seek or to need manpower. But definitely the numbers had changed. Uh, but entertainment could have been uh, a big draw and saw the employment of, of many people because with the opening of the Suez Canal, now Port Said sort of metamorphosed from work site to, um, to global stop or stop in, in, in global trajectories. And uh, with later developments in, in shipping technologies, Uh, we see how uh, ships needed to stop in Port Said to recall, to, to replenish their coal. So in some ways, the things that had been at the margins of laboring life in Port Said actually came to the center, that it could have been perhaps, you know, the bars and the taverns and the coffee houses or whatnot that really kind of took on more life after 1869. Yes, absolutely. You mention in the book that for many in many histories of Egypt, if Port Said makes any appearance at all, it's in 1882, which is the year of the British occupation of Egypt um, after the revolt of army Colonel Ahmad Urabi um, against, you know, the sort of ruling cadre of Egyptian elites um, and, you know, the British step in to preserve their interests um, and continue then to occupy Egypt until 1922. I wanted to ask you the story that you've told about the emergence of Port Said as an urban space in the canal zone. What are the connections between that history and the moment of 1882? So from a from an infrastructural standpoint, the existence, the sheer existence of Port Said, of course, enabled the British army to start its uh, occupation of, of the country exactly via these uh, points on the northern shore. In terms of what the prior history of urban mixing 
and immigration, in terms of what the connection of that prior history to 1882, that's a good question. I haven't, I hadn't really thought about uh, what potential connection could there be. But what I can say is that in terms of Egyptian national history, Port Said maintains a legacy of ambiguous loyalty. The way in which Port Said is seen from the uh, traditional center of Egyptian power is uh, is that of uh, of an ambiguous sort of uh, place uh, within within uh, uh, within the Egyptian territory, and this sort of is maintained even later, even beyond the final benchmark of 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 the book. So we see how throughout the 20th century, Port Said. Uh, there are moments in Port Said's history where these um, sort of suspicions of of mixed loyalty, this ambiguity between belonging and foreignness are maintained. So we see, for example, how in uh, 1967, Israel occupied the Sinai and Port Said and many other uh, canal cities had to be evacuated, its population stranded for years and even uh, in, in recent history, Port Said figures prominently, but again with a sort of an ambiguous kind of role, taking on, taking on an ambiguous kind of role. Today's conversation cast the history of Suez in a less familiar light. What might first have appeared as a story of technological progress of great men drawing lines on the map and finding ingenious ways for ships to carry cargo from the Indian Ocean to the North Atlantic, now appears to be something more ambivalent and complex. We heard today about the many men and women from Egypt and across the Mediterranean who lived and worked in the Canal Zone and whose lives and deaths were the cost of its success. We learned about where they came from, the work they did, and the difficulties they had maintaining ties with home. We also heard, however, about the communities they made, the things they enjoyed, and the solidarities they built across lines of race and nation. In the end, what we can see is a deeply human history of how the Canal Zone was made by people on the move. For our listeners who'd like to find out more, there will be, as always, a bibliography on our website, www.autumnhistorypodcast.com where you could stay in touch with fellow listeners and keep track of new episodes. That's all for this episode. Until next time, take care.